welcome everybody to Way of the Blade, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Schneider, from Segunda Kaido blog and author of Way of the Blade, 100 of the Greatest Bloody Matches in Wrestling History, which is available as we speak from Amazon. So if you were listening to this podcast, and uh, you go buy my book. And I am uh, very happy to be joined uh, by a, a, a former Death Valley driver, uh, poster coach Tony K, and I'm not sure if you're doing anything else. No, uh, that's it. I, I haven't done anything since the Death <laughs> so Valley. Th- this is, of, of course, of, you know, <laughs> of course, uh, to Tony Khan, of executive president, promoter. What is your title? Well, I'm the the the, the CEO, president, the booker, the founder, the owner well, of all, AEW. All of them. Uh, it's a lot of those things. All right, and I'm happy to be joined by him, and we are going to be uh, discussing Ric Flair versus Ted DiBiase for the NWA World Heavyweight title in Mid-South Wrestling, uh, November 6th, 1985. Uh, A great match, and my sort of hot take claim on this is that this is the greatest single episode of professional wrestling television ever. And one of the reasons... Very much concur that it would be up there on the list. And for a one-hour episode, I think it's definitely one of the best one-hour episodes of all time. And, you know, I thought one of the reasons I I sort of picked, uh, thought about, would be interesting to talk to you about this match is you're uh, producing and running wrestling television. So this is like, you have a sort of a a more of an insider sense of how wrestling television works. And to see something like this, which is like, you know, almost the platonic ideal of wrestling TV, building something, creating a moment, uh, you know, creating a, I mean, Teddy Biasi was already obviously a star, but this was a, a baby face turn of for the ages. Um, yeah, it was a, a total 180. And that's what makes it so special, you know, in so many ways. I mean, there are many things that make this special. And on paper, when you see it's Ric Flair versus Teddy Biasi for the NWA world title, that looks intriguing. It sounds intriguing, but what happened, the way it was executed, it's, very different than it than it sounds on paper and what they pulled off like you said with uh, a, a babyface switch uh, somebody doing a total 180 of the perception that they had in the territory it's really really compelling and i agree i think it's one of the best one hour episodes of wrestling tv of all time and one of the best wrestling shows ever and i love mid-south wrestling and when we were talking about matches uh that would be good to review on the show i this was one we kind of settled on. For me, this was my pick for number one. Even though it's not the longest bell-to-bell match, it's super compelling wrestling, and this was my favorite thing we watched in the Death Valley Driver Mid-South set, and this is one of my favorite matches and and TV shows ever. And uh, Ric Flair is a really good friend of mine. And, uh, you know, I just saw him last week, actually. And I have always really treasured this show and I'm glad that it's really gotten embraced and, and people have, you know, seen it because when I was a kid, this was a pretty hard tape to come by and not everyone knew about this match. And that's one of the great things about the digitization of wrestling and the dissemination of so much wrestling. And uh, a lot of people have seen this and I think it got included on one of WWE's uh, DVDs, which is, I think, how many, many more people saw it, uh, which is great. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that 
now when we talk about it, a lot of people have the context for what this match meant yeah. historically. It's, it's on YouTube, and it's you know that's one of the great things about it. You know, you, uh, well, you me would, and I'm, me and you grew up in like, the days where you had to get tapes, and you know, I would encourage people to watch it on the WWE's DVD. Okay. Sure, okay, or get the WWE's DVD. Sure, <laughs> uh, because I, I will. Uh, I don't want to uh, incur. You know, I, I definitely. Uh, you know, they that is their. They bought that tape library, so that's their tape. But, that's true. And I, uh, I, maybe it's on Peacock. I don't know. I haven't had the easiest time finding things on that. We can. That's a different conversation for a different day. But, um, you yes, know. But, the, but this show is uh, really, you know, special. And it's funny because it's not the first take of the match. You know, there's, there's an angle. Like we said, it's a very special episode of television. The, you know, we think we're getting this match earlier in the episode and it gets snatched out from under us in a very compelling way. And it feels like hey, there's kind of a weird feel when Boyd Pierce is out there and you've got uh, Ric Flair and Ted DiBiase, these two heels, and there's something amiss as this match is about to happen. You can feel something's not quite right, I think. So the context behind this is uh, Butch Reed had been chasing Flair in Mid-South to try to take the NWA yep. world title from him. And... Yep. Flair had hired Dick Slater to take out Butch Reed as a bounty hunter so he wouldn't have to wrestle Butch Reed anymore. And so Butch Reed is injured. Uh, Slater is taking... Uh, taking him out. Flair comes out and kind of says, well, you know, I don't, I'm in here. I don't have to wrestle now. You know, Butch Reed's hurt. I'm just going to go back on my Learjet. You know, cut sort of a classic asshole Ric Flair promo. And uh, then they announced that the board of directors has instead given this title shot on television to DiBiase. Flair's going to have to wrestle. And uh, it's pretty cool. You know, one of the interesting things about this era for Flair is that he was involved, like, tertiarily in almost all of these huge territorial feuds of the 80s. That's so true. He was this. He, he was the. I said in my book the straw that stirred the drink, even if he wasn't in the bar. So like he was part of you know this this basic match basically turns into DiBiase versus Dick Murdoch. We'll talk about how that happens in a second. Well, but yeah, that's and, the that's and the. What's great is even like you said, the word tertiary is so perfect to describe his involvement in this because even when it is Dick Murdoch and Ted DiBiase fighting, Rick ends up being, like you said, the straw that turns the drink, he ends up flipping the fight when you think when we get that far. And it's super compelling, and that's so true. And he, the way this match, A, gives the fans an NWA world title match and creates like a very compelling episode of wrestling television and the exact scenario that you just perfectly described and set up, Phil, uh, really sets the stakes and then when rick leaves and goes to the next feud and to the next territory he leaves them with such a great piece of business that they do to establish this ted dibiase dick murdoch program and set up ted dibiase as a made baby face as really a top star it's just such good stuff and that's why well, i mean but butch reed dick slater goes on uh, you know they, he sets that up too i mean yeah, like they, these lefty lefty he leaves them with sort of two big programs and you know yeah. this is the same thing that happened you know freebirds von erics started with a rick flair title match right i think it's the same taping that he did the butch reed story and i think it's the next show right because i believe it was like the same taping at the um, the Irish McNeil Boys Club is the name of the place in Shreveport, and I believe isn't it the the, the next uh, 
that the episode with Flair DiBiase is actually the next episode after the Butch Reed. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, uh, I think I think it's I think it's all the same. I think yeah, it probably is all the same taping. I'm not because well, I think Flair Butch Reed is the week before, so I think he did it. Uh, you know the the same loop. Yeah, you because know, um, I know there was Flair like a, a couple of Flair Butch Reed tape uh, matches that like house show matches which we have which were on that Mid South tape. Is there a television match between the two? Yeah, so I think it. I believe there is, and I think it's the thing that goes awry the week before. Okay. Yeah, because the uh, like I said, the Freebirds Von Erichs was set up with a Ric Flair title match. Lawler Dundee, their famous like loser leaves town match in eighty, the end of eighty five. All of that feud s- starts because it's Lawler and Dundee arguing about who's going to get to wrestle Flair. And it ends up being Coco Beware. It ends up being Coco Beware, right? Exactly. Uh, and, you know, it, it, Dusty Rhodes, Kevin Sullivan, a lot of that feud has to do with, like, at one point, you know, Dusty Rhodes loses a loser leaves town match and comes into the, you know, becomes the Midnight Rider and, you know, beats Flair for the title but refuses to unmask. So he's, like, always, like, around in all of the... You know, I, the weirdest, it's a, maybe not the greatest analogy. I almost think about it, like, in the with the Marvel movies, how setting up... Avengers Infinity War Thanos would just kind of show up and be part of something right yep. like he would set somebody off in Guardians of the Galaxy to go take this stone or this other stone and like Flair's like that and of all territorial 80s wrestling he's like above it with this title and sort of seeding his way into all of these other feuds very cool and then it kind of ends not super far after this because at one point you know not far after this Flair becomes pretty much a uh company champion just yes. really working for crockett so this is kind of the very tail end of flair is this guy who's just dipping his toe in all of these different angles and all of these different territories and there's the stuff with uh, eddie gilbert and the nightmare too uh yeah. and, you know this and really a lot of stuff in mid-south the obviously the von erics and the Freebirds is probably as good an example as there is and that's a great match and a great scenario uh, this, though, for a self-contained episode of television, you're right. I mean, this, the story, there's no Butch Reed. Rick thinks he's got the night off. He's got to wrestle Ted DiBiase, which is kind of a strange match, like we were saying on paper, with you know the top heel in the territory against mm. the, the top heel in the world. Yeah. Um, and you would, th- you would think... That these guys would have wrestled each other a lot, just because you know they were, you know, in Missouri or whatever, and they have they only have. Uh, I checked cage match for this. You know, that's not one hundred percent accurate. Eight matches, singles matches in their entire career against each other. They had uh, one in seventy eight, one in eighty, one in eighty one, uh, one in eighty two, a couple in eighty four, three in eighty four. Which looks like they were Kansas, like a uh, uh, Central States. Uh, okay. Central States War, and then this match in '85, and they don't wrestle again ever. This is it. This is the final Ric Flair Ted DiBiase singles match. Were there uh, matches before that in St. Louis? Uh, it looks like there's a couple in Kansas City, and oh. there, yeah, there's, there's the ones in St. Louis are in the early early '80s and late '70s. There's one yep. in '78, one in '81, and '81. So it's really That's interesting. It. You have this like iconic angle, uh, this this like really triumphant thing from DiBiase, and that's it. No more. Ever they they team together in a Survivor Series and they're part of a couple Royal Rumbles and that's it that for for that for that thing you would and it still works even though and it kind of works well because you know part of the that incredible promo that Bill Watts cuts in between we're doing this a little out of order is talking about how you know the world title shots don't come along very often some people never get the match 
And, yep. you know, this is it. DiBiase never got another match. Well, I'm this looking is... forward to getting to that Bill Watts promo. Oh, my God, that That's, Bill Watts promo. Now that I not only have, you know, not, not just seen how the sausage is made, but I've made a lot of sausage. And when I talk about that, I mean taped shows. And I've done a lot of tape wrestling shows and have a good sense of, like, how wraparounds are done and, like, the way shows are put together. So, like, now watching, like, old territory wrestling, studio wrestling, you know, and when I say old, I mean, of we're thinking 80s, but even really now, it's, you know, the 90s territory stuff at USWA, Smoky Mountain. It's fun to go back to, for me and look at how those shows are put together and stuff and knowing what I know about editing wrestling shows now. Um, but that that little uh, backstager they dropped in with Bill Watts is a very nice piece of business. And I agree. That's definitely in my notes to talk about in the match also is the promo uh, in between what, you know, kind of the false start to the match. Uh, that we can talk about uh, and the, the uh, Bill Watts promo in between. And then, of course, uh, the match itself, which is is beautiful. And uh, I'm glad you covered it in your book. Yeah. So we're jumping around a bit. So let's get back to let's, we'll, let's get back to this in somewhat order. These are always going to be a little jumping around. That's kind of the fun of them. But uh, so Dick Murdoch comes out after they announced the match with DiBiase and kind of says, you know, talks to DiBiase and says, you know, look, we've been. You know, I helped train you, and I was your mentor, and, you know, I've been trying to get flair, and this is, you know, really should be my shot, and I just, you know, why don't you step aside and give this to me? And, you know, Murdoch was a heel at this point, too, and, and kind of tells DiBiase, look, you know, it's not your time, kind of big dogs him a little bit. I'm the veteran guy, you know. Uh, step back and DiBiase refuses to do it and and he say, he makes it feel like he owes him he holds it over his head he said yeah. I got you in this territory you know he's makes it clear they have had a long-standing relationship so even if you're a new viewer you would know that maybe Dick Murdoch views himself as a mentor to T- Ted DiBiase and you can see right away Ted DiBiase you know as you know at this point the brashest most arrogant heel in all of Mid-South Wrestling and really the most despicable character in the history of the promotion, I would say. Uh, and the perception of him has changed so quickly, and it's done so masterfully. And uh, that's the reason I was, one of the reasons I was really excited to talk to you about this. And right, Murdoch, so Murdoch much, big brothers him a little bit. Like, all right, that's look. absolutely right. You know, that's absolutely like, big brothers him and tries to say, like, you know, this, you know, little brother, this, I'm the one that deserves this. He actually says, you don't deserve this match. And I do, and I've done. Look at everything I've done for you, and you should give this to me. And of course, Ted wants nothing to do with that. Sure. And they start fighting, and it's pretty great. You know, it gets physical. And like I said, when we talk about Rick being the straw that stirs the drink, the way you phrased it was so perfect, Phil. Here, Rick literally flips the situation because Ted is getting the better of Dick Murdoch, and Rick knees him in the back and knocks Ted out of the ring, which flips the whole situation, leading to Dick Murdoch throwing Ted into the ring post. And then, of course, like which was uh, subject matter for your book, that's where the blood starts to flow. It, do- it doesn't ever. I mean, he just, DiBiase, to, to ha- run this angle... To make it work, he's got to really open himself up, right? I mean, it doesn't this doesn't work if this is a, a Luger in Baltimore, a little dripple of blood, right? Like, it only works if he looks like he's bleeding to death. And he looks like he's bleeding to death. I mean, it is a, a gnarly, gnarly uh, blade job. By on the Muda scale, this would be very high in the Muda very scale. Very high on the Muda scale, yes. Um, that matches in the book, too, the Muda match. 
That's awesome. as it has to be, right? Of course, um, if you're writing. I mean, if you're writing the book, you're writing. I think yeah. the Muda. The, how can you not cover the Muda match? That's the scale is named after. I'm pretty. And I'm pretty sure that's a Dean invention. I I want to give. Even if it's not, I'm going to claim it as the Muda scale. By the way, that's I think a that, Dean Rasmussen. I, I think it's a Dean Rasmussen uh, uh, original. Uh, so Why gonna, did you? You used to write this thing that was so mean that was. Dean Rasmussen is a braying jackass. <laughs> and you would write these terrible things about your friend. Yeah. And they were hilarious. Yeah. But you stopped doing it. I stopped doing it. We're still, you know, it was it was all in the spirit of fun. Certainly nothing nobody's taking anything personal. <laughs> yes, that was the idea where we had the big breakup between the two that was one of the dumber things we did in Death Valley Driver, where we had the two the breakup between the two factions. Uh, I don't know. I think it was a long wrestling trip, probably to an ECWA show where we came up with this idea. We might have been sleep deprived. Um, <laughs> so we, uh, uh, okay. So yeah. So then we go into this Bill Watts uh, thing, and uh, you know, Bill yeah, Watts a bloody mess. And the crowd, by the way, the biggest heel in the history of the company, in a matter of fifteen seconds from when he first stood up for himself. Punched Dick Murdoch, knocked Dick Murdoch out of the ring, got kneed in the back by Ric Flair out of the ring, and then Dick Murdoch posts him, throws him into the post, and Ted, like you said, opens himself up and is bleeding everywhere. And Ted DiBiase has gone from being the biggest heel in the history of the company to a super hot baby face in, you know, 15 seconds probably. Was, yeah, I think it's fair to say. And I mean, that's a, one of the other great things about Flair as a storytelling device in this period, right? Is you were, when he was going to come in, even if it was the most hated guy in your town, you were still going to be on his side against Ric Flair, right? Yep. Like, I, we, we hate Ted Biasi, but Ted Biasi is the guy we hate from. You know, the biggest jerk at my high school. If he's in a yeah. fist fight with somebody in a different <laughs> high school, I'm still going to be on that guy's side, right? So that yeah, was kind I of... Agree. I agree. That's it. That's so... a great way of putting it. And uh, that's that's exactly, I think, how everyone saw it. And also, I mean, the idea of Ric Flair back then, you'd hear about Ric Flair. And I was even a kid, you know, I remember being a kid and I first saw the WWF on TV and because it was easier to find and they did a really good job promoting the kids. But, you know, less than a year later, I was watching WCW and you hear of Ric Flair. And when you see him, it's even better than what you've been told. And in 1985, nothing could be more true. You hear about Ric Flair, but 1985, Ric Flair walks in, and it, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, not only did he come off as the most hateable heel, but he, like, he escalated this whole situation so much and uh, made Ted really the, the most despicable guy. Like you said, it made everybody really sympathize with Ted. And, uh, and then, you know, that framed the situation for Dick Murdoch to come in and be able to like you said, perfectly big brother, uh, Ted, and then create that situation where, like we said, in 15 seconds, you've totally altered the structure of your territory and set yourself up with the hot baby face they really needed and set up this great story and great program. And then back to what we were saying before, you've got the Bill Watts piece of business and I know you've probably got some. I want to hear what you think of this Bill Watts interview because I have a lot of thoughts on. I this. mean, it's 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 the I mean, Bill Watts. Obviously, is somebody who 
you know, with 2021 eyes, there's some, you know, uh, there's some uh, soot on his face. And we could, we could have that could be a different conversation. But in this role as like the sort of stern boss, uh, you know, of a promotion. I mean, as good as anybody, better than anybody's ever done. He's the so all-time good. best, yeah. All-time best all-time. at being like the guy who is going to tell you, you know, the, the like the Bobby Knight coach, the tough, like gruff, you know, hard love guy that you're your father figure that you want to impress and never can. And he, he basically cuts this promo where he basically says, you know what? Uh, you know, DiBiase has got arterial damage. Yep. You know, he's got a, he's got, he's, you know, we're very, the doctors are working on him, but look, he's, you don't get him any shots at a world title. This is, and he's going to say, he's, he's going to go out there and fight. He talks about a disgust that he is at Roberto Duran for quitting yep. on his seat against Sugar. You're hitting all my stuff and I love it. He's <laughs> like, yeah. he's yeah. like yeah. oh, you know, he's, he made me, made me see because he had a stomach ache and made me sick to my stomach. And, when you know, he, when he quit against Sugar Ray Leonard in, the, in New Orleans Superdome, it made me sick to my stomach. He had a stomach ache. That's it. <laughs> it was so good. And then he basically <laughs> says, you know, look, DBS, you know, he's going to, he's, we're putting a pressure bandage on. And, you know, talk about the ultimate Chekhov's gun, right? If the pressure bandage is on in the promo, the pressure bandage is coming off in the match. And he kind of says, you know, look, you know, I'm telling, and this is my favorite, my favorite part of this. You know, if parents are watching this with his kids, we encourage you to show parental discretion. If you've got a weak stomach, you may not want to watch. But look, after the break, Ric Flair is res- Teddy Biasi is wrestling Ric Flair for the world title, and we're not stopping it for blood. And he's like, "Yes, we're not. Let's go." <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's, it's so good. All right, I'm, and you've hit my three big notes, and I love it. So. Uh, Number one note, pressure bandage. I love the pressure bandage. <laughs> pressure gotta bandage. have somebody put a pressure, gotta have somebody just straight up steal that, right? Somebody's got to, at some point. I was a 12-year-old kid about coming coming out with a pressure bandage. So believe me, uh, pressure bandage is not law. That was amazing. Uh, and he made sure to hit it a few times. We've applied a pressure bandage. Yes. <laughs> The arterial damage. The arterial. Suffered arterial damage. We've applied a pressure bandage. And, and then, uh, you know, it's just like you said. Uh, it sets it up perfectly. We're coming back with this match. We're not stopping it for blood. It's not for the weak stomach. But, look, this is going to be intense. And you, what you said earlier, you know, really rang true, I think, to the fans. These shots don't come along very often. You could wait a year. You might never get it. Some people career. never do it. Some people never get the shot, which is, yep. I mean, is a thing that's different now about, uh, you know, I mean, I think that was one of the big changes we, we talked about 21st you know, century wrestling. I, I believe, I think it's, at least for me in promoting wrestling, I've tried to make it feel that way. Mm-hmm. They don't, the title shots don't come that easy. And if you think about it, like in AEW, it's, and I really do love Mid-South, and, like, some of the ideas, some of the show endings, some of the things I've done have definitely been inspired, influenced. And I not not everything – I know not everyone loves everything about it, and I try to make it a, a good show, you know, for, for different audiences, different fans. And not – this is not – like, I'm not saying this self-servingly, but I try to create the perception of our title, which is not a coincidence. It looks a lot like – in terms of being a giant, big, giant belt that is a beautiful belt, my favorite – title of the 80s and my childhood is definitely the north american title the 26 sometimes they say 27 pounds of silver and gold and so i appreciate that 
the idea of title shots being hard to come by. And so I've tried to create that. You know, it's not like everybody gets a shot at the title. And if you think about it, people have gone a long time without getting one. And, you know, so anyway. But yeah, and no, and I, think, I agree. I think it's probably one of the things that, uh, you know, that I think AEW does do better than it's, you know, I think the titles have become, there's two of them. And, you know, every at some point, everybody gets a run with uh, WWE. But when I grew up, you know, it's like it was San Martino. And then it was, well, I'm not growing up that old, but like, you know, Hogan had it for like six years. And, you know, it wasn't something yeah. that hardly ever changed. And yeah, people that's would That's how I grew up. And uh, that's my belief. I mean, look, you know, we've been around a few years now. There's been three AEW champions. And they've all been huge stars in wrestling. You know, Chris Jericho, Moxley, and Kenny Omega. And I think that's important. And, and, and uh, you know, at least when this is being recorded, that's true. There's been three AEW World Champions. There's only been four different TNT champions, and they've all been huge stars in wrestling, in my opinion, with Cody, Brody Lee, Darby Allen, and Miro. So I've protected the titles, and never has the title gone to somebody that wasn't ready or wasn't a star. I don't believe in the perception that you can take a title and then put a title on somebody, and the title will make the person a star. Like, stars win titles because... Uh, the title, you know, if you're using the title to prop a person up, it's going to hurt the title in the process. That's the laws of thermodynamics. Like, heat sure. is passed from a warmer body to a colder body. And, like, uh, so you have to have a hot belt and a hot champion. You want to have it both ways. And if you start trying to, like, hot shot people or build people up, and there's value to it down the card, but, but like, you know, anyway, neither here nor there, but that's my belief on the titles and protecting the titles. And and that is one of the great things about what Bill Watts said is, like, he made it seem like, A, what you're about to see is going to be some of the craziest wrestling television, you know, in terms of a match, in terms of a situation, the world titles on the line. It's going to be bloody, probably. <laughs> and uh, it's two of the biggest names imaginable for that territory at that time. Can you imagine if you're like a, an 11 or 12 year old that's about when i started watching wrestling when i was an 11 or 12 11 12 year old kid 10 year old kid and bill watts gives that warning to parents i was i was i literally was (laughs) it's the first time i was i got this tape from john mcadam and um i had a, a good friend who i still talk to all the time my good friend todd um and he and i both got tapes from john mcadam and i think this this might be one of the ones i got from him but i also got a lot of them direct from john so uh, I'm not sure, but I, this definitely came from John McAdam. And uh, I got it when I was 12. And then later I got a lot of tapes from John. I would literally, um, he would send the tape list to me and I would do the HTML and then he would put them on the website. And he bought, you know Jeff Bowdrin? Sure. Uh, he bought Jeff Bowdrin's tapes and he had Jeff Bowdrin's tape list. And he had me, and I, I haven't talked to John in a long time. Right? It's, I should catch up with him. It's been a long time. I know he has a podcast too, actually. Uh, and uh, he um, he he bought Jeff Bowdern's tapes, and he I was doing the HTML for the tape list, and so uh, I would you know he would give me tapes in return, and then he would put he put that up on his site, and I think John, I don't I don't the site disappeared soon after that, and John stopped trading, and I was really glad when he kind of reemerged on Twitter, maybe fifteen twenty years later. Um, that's but funny. anyway, neither here the nor old, there. But the old school I, I was. Did you I ever was did you ever buy any Schneider comps? If you did, I'm sorry about the video quality. <laughs> you know what? I read the list, and I've read so much of your writing over the years, Phil. Like I've read, I mean, you know, over I mean, hundreds and hundreds of match reviews you've written, and um, I don't know if I ever bought a Schneider comp. I might have in college actually, maybe one, because there was really good stuff on there. But I, I feel like 
every Schneider comp, there was, like, I had, like, half the stuff on it. And, like, there was half the stuff I wanted, but it was, like, I have half that stuff. So maybe, does that make sense? Sure. No, I got you. I, 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 same I, I way you think about it. I mean, it, I mean, that's the great thing now. It's, like, you can just go watch shit on YouTube and or wherever or different like, services. I to encourage, as a wrestling promoter now, you try not to encourage <laughs> everyone to watch everything. I, but, uh, but you don't have to necessarily buy $20 of sketchy video quality video. Like, the kids have it a lot easier than, than we had it growing up with this, uh, I think, you know, back in our days where you really did have to send a guy 20 bucks and maybe you get a tape maybe the stuff is watchable well, maybe you know, it's the, blue you know, screen the, i was i was all about trading and and trading tapes with for tapes and i you know when i was a kid and and so i was 12 when i saw this back to your point i i really was enthralled by it that mid-south tv you know when i was seven eight nine ten eleven twelve i was like exponentially soaking up wrestling when i was i first got into it when i was seven i was watching the wwf by the time i was eight I was so when is w- this about time-wise like i don't exactly i, I know i'm a little so older 95, than... this would be 1995 okay. i got this tape okay. and i was 12 years old and i had watched the wwf and then I got into WCW, and then I spent years renting the tapes as any video store I could find. Sure. And then uh, around 94, when I was 11, I got on the internet, and the RSPW FAQ was up. And then that's how I learned a lot more about wrestling, and I'd been reading magazines and books and uh, stuff. And then uh, in 1995, I got into tape trading when, and as I was like 12, and uh, just you know, every year would soak up as much as I could, learn more and more. So when I was 12, I got these Mid-South Wrestling tapes. It blew my mind that there's, like, younger and in some cases better, some cases, like, developing, but all these people that were the huge wrestling stars of my childhood, and there are so many of them in the same place. You know, with obviously we're talking about Ted DiBiase, Ric Flair being the touring champion would come through, but the main stars of the territory being, like, Ted DiBiase, Jake Roberts, and the Midnight Express, the Rock and Roll Express. Duggan. All these we can go on for hours. So I mean, long. the first time you say Mid South Duggan when you're used to WWF Duggan, it's like, what is this? This is not what I expected this to be. That's it. You're so right. <laughs> you're watching this stuff, and that's the best example of anything because he's the person. He's he's arguably the best, like you know, the best person. The certainly close to being in the Mount Rushmore of this whole Mid South pantheon that we all probably listening to this podcast. Most of us really love this stuff, and. uh the Duggan in Mid-South is insanely great, and it's so different from the WWF version. It's not like DiBiase where, you know, there's elements of the Million Dollar Man in the, the heel Ted DiBiase North American champion, really the character that he was up until this 15-second switch that we were just talking about. Right. And But Duggan, it's like a different guy. It's, a, it's amazing. Yeah, it is crazy. And, it, you know, the... It's interesting when you think about this feud is, you know, thinking back on DiBiase's Million Dollar Man stuff, if you really think about what he was kind of doing was cartoon flair, right? Like, you know, he was doing kind of a a really over the, you know, really sort of like a PG version. Like the, the, there were a lot, he, but it was a different take. It was a very different take on, there were a lot of people just doing Ric Flair, and they would argue, and I'm sure their argument was like, hey, man, this is like, you know, some Buddy Rogers shit, screw, you know, but at the end of the day, like, there were so many people that were just blatantly ripping off Rick sure. in the 80s. And- but, I, but I mean, specifically the idea of, like, you know, when the, these great Flair promos, and I was, you know, my sort of 
you know, Genesis as a wrestling fan. I started watching right around 86. So I was like uh-huh. 10. And I, you know, started with the WWF. Everybody starts with the WWF. Just like, that's how it works for the most part. Unless you were grew up in a place where you had like an established territory. I was in California. There wasn't really yep. a California uh, promotion by then. There was one that's ones obviously before, but not in 85. There was, uh, and so I started with the WWF. And then quickly, you know, the thing that I really adored and loved was, you know, World, World Championship Wrestling NWA stuff. So I, in a way, grew up on Ric Flair promos where he's talking about the $500 socks and the limousines and the and the thing. And then, so do, when you see DiBiase a couple years later in a, not in an Armani suit, but in a giant sparkly jacket with a dollar bill sign <laughs> on, it's like, a, what is, it's like, it's like this cheesy shit, right? He's not dressed like a real billionaire. This billionaire, this guy's dressed like, uh, uh, you know, uh, like a cartoon and a, a villain in a Richie Rich comic or something like that. So I always, I'm, I always, I'm, I was not ever a million dollar man guy. I always thought it was some, I always thought it was some uh, uh, PG uh, Saturday morning cartoon Ric Flair stuff. Like you never heard Ted DiBiase talk about all like the rats he was running through. You know, like Flair was, Flair was, there was some darkness to what Flair was doing. That is very true. That's a, that's a great way of putting it. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, okay, so when DiBiase is doing these these sketches and these vignettes and different things as he was coming in with it, clearly like they were trying to like skew and program to a different audience. I think it worked really well because I was like one of those kids of that age when DiBiase was one of the first wrestlers I knew, and then I learned about Rick. Maybe I heard Rick's name. I started to read the wrestling magazines in the news in the supermarket. Uh, whenever I could, you know, when my mom was grocery shopping, I would like go read the magazines. And so sure, I read me too. Rick Flair <laughs> and saw photos of him all these times, you know, in 1990 before I saw the actual Ric Flair. And when I saw him, he was incredible. And then within a year, he was in the WWF. And it was like the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And he was with Bobby Heenan and he had the actual belt. And I was eight years old and I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And that really kind of ironically, in many ways, deep down, made me believe in the power of what now I describe as the forbidden door. And when I say the forbidden door, I don't just mean me and me personally and like in the character that I've that I play when I call myself the forbidden door. I mean, the idea that like in wrestling that, uh, you know. Seeing like we're talking about, seeing Ric Flair travel, the champion, you know, and competing, competing against the North American champion, competing against different people in the territory, that it's really compelling TV, and uh, that you know that that can make you feel like a different sense of reality. Seeing these people, seeing promotional bounds being crossed, and it's like, I don't know, it it, it for me. Uh, that was one of my favorite things of my childhood, and immediately I saw what you were saying, and you're right. And like, but I think that's one of the reasons why when Rick got to the WWF, that Ted's position changed. On the, you know, if you really look at it, where the Million Dollar Man fit in around the time Rick came in, it kind of changed how he fit in on the card. They moved him into Money Inc., and he became a tag team wrestler, and he had been. It's, you know, usually one of the top three heels and top three kind of programs consistently for a few years before Rick came in. But it definitely I agree with you, it's, you know, to me as a fan, um, even though I saw the million dollar man first and he was one of the first heels I really hated. And, and 
I was like, to your point, it was meant for kids, but I was one of those kids that they programmed to, and it was very, very effective. But I agree with you that once you see Ric Flair, and especially when they're in the same company, it's, you know, it's hard to compare the two. And right, Ric is definitely the greatest of being that. But Ted is, to me, a more masterful uh, take on it because at least it's a different interpretation that is meant to skew to a different audience. Like, I'll give you an example. Before Terry Taylor was the Red Rooster, do you remember the Terry Taylor matches when he first jumped to the WWF after he'd been in the UWF and he came in as like a heel? And yeah, it vaguely, was, it wasn't great. He was just doing Rick, he wore the robe. <laughs> he was like he didn't have, you know, before they made him the Red Rooster. To be fair, he had a little run as Terry Taylor, like in a robe, doing Rick moves, Rick mannerisms with the blonde hair and like the red tights with it, you know, the cursive initials on him and everything and it was like very clearly he was just trying to do rick in the wwf and like it was not even it was not even close and i've and then there's so many like rick knockoffs and stuff that i would just say that like i think the million dollar man was a very 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 successful creation and i agree that like the the perception of rick but it's one of those things like if we were in a film class we could probably go back and argue and rick is like one of my best friends but i'm sure he would be the first to sit here and say like he he spread that perception. He nobody's ever worn the suit and carried the belt more effectively. Um, but you know, there's a lot of a lot of people have played that role. Yeah. Too. And, it, uh, it, and 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 so getting back to this this match and these guys, I uh, right. I wanted to make this one quick point though because we kind of we went on a great diversion. But I was thinking less about the 11-year-old kid who watched it on tape from John McAdam, but the 11-year-old kid who was watching on TV whose mom turned it off. Can you imagine? Because that was basically what Watts was saying. Well, if you got kids in the room, can you imagine Watts gives that promo and then your mom flips the TV off? Oh my god. It would be the worst thing in the world. (laughs) One of those times I'd be really interested to see the minute-by-minute ratings to right. see like, the, to see what it how it comes out you know yeah but i imagine at least some mom was like oh he says it's gonna get violent let me turn this off and the kid's gotta be sitting there just shell-shocked in horror it's not like you can go look again it's like you know if you're that kid if you don't watch it then you're never gonna see it right it's not like it's gonna be uh it's not like it's available on highlights the next day on you know or the internet i mean it's just like in 80 you know, 85, 80, you know, it's, if it happens and that's it, right? You don't binge watch Mid-South Wrestling TV on Netflix. It just it exists so that it stops existing. You know, can you imagine being that kid and then they, you know, it becomes available on video all these years later oh and God. you get to finally see it? That would be great. Oh, sure. <laughs> I mean, that was a big, you know, having all the, uh, you know, one of the coolest. That would be like the Shawshank Redemption of being a wrestling fan. <laughs> sure. like, well, you lose all these years, but finally, at least you get to see it someday. <laughs> Yeah, totally. All right, so we got we're, we have this Watts promo. He builds us up, and then we get the match itself. And the match itself was a TV match, right? It wasn't an arena match. It was, you know, a, a built to do the one thing it did. Uh, yep. And it, you know, did it tremendously, right? You had these, mo- you know, DiBiase had these moments, this, these, a couple of these huge near falls where the crowd really bought into me. Being able so to as we get into the match, one of the things I really like about it, and, like, I have to give so much credit to Ted DiBiase, and I think, like, it's really important to talk about, because if we're going to talk about the, mil- like, for any negativity about the Million Dollar Man, the heel Ted DiBiase and the Mid-South Ted DiBiase to me is one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. And... He never got to. I agree with everything you're saying, but I think that like he was a different personality, a different character than Ric Flair in Mid South, and 
it feels to me like the Million Dollar Man is kind of a blend of the Mid-South Ted DiBiase and kind of like, like you said, like this, a mix of like this cartoon over the top Ric Flair and that like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, that show was getting really big. Sure. Like I think it was syndicated, kind of like Superstars of Wrestling at the time and, and Worldwide and Challenge. Sure, and Robin things. Leach. Robin Leach, exactly. And he was involved with the WWF. So clearly they were like, Vince was clearly watching that show. And I, and they actually, I think they did the lifestyles of the rich and the famous with Ted. And I feel like it was like a mix of the mid South Ted DiBiase, like some Rick, a lot of Ric Flair over the top stuff thrown in. And like the lifestyles of the rich and the famous, which was like for the young, for if you're young, it's like, it was like a very like white collar stuffy version of cribs. Right, and, yeah, exactly. It was a, it was it wasn't necessarily what well, you weren't necessarily going to see what how Method Man lived, but you were going to see how you know uh, some asshole on Dynasty lives. So it's like you know a lot of marble, a lot of uh, chandeliers, a lot of uh, that kind of shit. <laughs> yeah, very very good. <laughs> it's great. So yeah, I mean, but the match. I mean, as we get into the match, um, one of the things I really really love about it is that when DiBiase is it gets going he is immediately like a different wrestler than he was and he moves differently than he did at the beginning of the program and his offense it he he executes everything differently and he does it like a baby face like when he gets rick down and he drops that dibiase fist drop we're used to seeing him do that like as a heel during the heat section of a match and when he's in you know heel control and it's something DiBiase, you know, we've seen him do it a million times. But when he drops that fist drop, the way we've seen him, that falling fist drop he does to it, you know, it's totally different. It's like a hot babyface offense move, and the crowd's into it in a totally different way. Can you imagine the reaction to that move a couple we- a week ago? Right. You know I mean? And it's a hot offensive move in the match when he drops that fist drop. And then... It's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite things when, like, when you get when you get a wrestler who does that sort of um, where he, where you know a long time heel does his heel stuff in a way where the crowd recognizes and cheers for it. My favorite dumb example of that was Starcade '84. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> there was a match that where it's Ole Anderson and Keith Larson against Ivan and Nikita. I don't know if you remember this match. It's not the one of the more heralded Stargate match. It's a very good match, though. And you have the point where Oli's working babyface against these Russians. And it's Oli, right? Not one of the more, uh, you know, the idea of him as a babyface is almost ridiculous. Right? It's like, you imagine this guy is somebody you cheer for. But he's a babyface. And at one point, he, like, does the thing where he puts, the, like, Ivan in a hammer lock and drops a knee and the crowd goes, yeah, work the arm, Oli. It's the greatest thing ever. It's like this, you know, you'd seen Oli do this to your heroes for years. Yeah. I mean, okay, so here's an applicable example. Like, when Ric Flair is a babyface, the knee breaker is uh, like a hot off when he's on fire and he's trying to set up the figure four and he's got the crowd behind him. It's like kind of a hot move, but you know, like with DiBiase, and it's a little bit different because a fist drop is like, you know, it's a it's a fist drop. It's different than the new, but when he does it as a heel, it's more like, you know, it's he's on script. It's a heel in control of the match. He's on task. Like things are going the way he wants. Like, you know, it's just, it I really like the way he came out and, and immediately dropped the fist drop with a purpose. It was great. And, you know, it's funny because we could talk about the similarities between DiBiase and Flair. And 
you know, how I, to me, I think they were two of the top people in wrestling at the time. Obviously, Rick, I think many people would say, and I would say was the best person in the world. And I think DiBiase was, you know, one of the, one of the best. And it's interesting. You're a bigger, you're a bigger DiBiase fan than I am. This is, I think, a, I really. I mean, look when we did the Mid South Project. Look how much of the great stuff was DiBiase. I it's think interesting. This, so I'm, I'm a, this is a behind the curtain thing. So I put the Mid South set together. That was the thing that I did. Me I and remember. a couple of other people actually did the full on. We're why this is something you can only do when you're not married with kids. There's the idea of doing this now seems insane. But you know, I'm single, so fuck it. I don't have anything else to do. I'll watch all Mid South television and, and arena footage and narrow it down. And DiBiase was this guy when watching all of it. It was like he was a definite high highs guy. But there was so much long chin lock. Uh, North American title matches where then DiBiase would pull up for an object and load his fist in a fist drop after an eight minute chin lock matches that were just painful to watch. So it's like, I think it's a, the completest in me putting the set together. And those didn't make the set. So it's not like him, Brad Armstrong having a boring ass 17 minute North American title match. That was on the, that was on the, in the trash heap. And it's like, we put on DiBiase Duncan. We put on this match. We put on like all these high end DiBiase. Yeah. And it's like, I was sitting there. I, I became less, you know, I became, I'm a DiBiase skeptic because like you're the, I was watching so much DiBiase where he just really felt like he was his formula for like a house show a lot of times was rough. Like I'm defending the North American title against Brad Armstrong and this match is good. I got a thing I'm going to do and it's not great. <laughs> so it's funny. I, I think I, I think I'm a low DiBiase voter. That's it. That's it. The high highs and the low lows, right? High highs and the low lows. And yes, I mean, obviously, Jesus, I mean, you can't deny the high highs, right? I mean, there is some, you know, DiBiase, you know, Doug and DiBiase in the Rat Pack and this thing. And then as a baby face, you know, teaming with Dr. Death, I mean, it was some great stuff. But An underrated thing I liked was when, it, and it had, there was a good tag program out of it, but it was a good singles feud, is when uh, the Terry Taylor, Ted DiBiase match, which is kind of a weird deal where Ted DiBiase, the North American champion, says he wants... To be the you know the TV deal, we got this great TV deal. The TV title means a lot now, so I want Terry Taylor's TV title. And they do the match, and Jake tries to interfere against Terry Taylor, and he screws up and accidentally trips Ted. And then T- Terry Taylor wins the North American title and has both belts and sets up the TV title tournament. Well, it's like uh, you know, I to me. Um, it was a little bit of a funky setup for the match, but that putting that aside, what it led to that I thought was really cool was the heel-heel program between Jake and Ted, and it was a different dynamic, and it's, you know, I've, I've experimented with it a little bit and had a lot of fun with it, and one of your favorites is Eddie Kingston, and when Eddie came in, I had Eddie, and Jake was actually, actually, Jake the Roberts was literally involved in this program with him, where... Um, I had a lot of the heels kind of going at it ahead of a battle royal, uh, and they would all be kind of arguing amongst the heels, and you had Eddie Kingston, you know, backed by the Lucha Brothers and the Butcher and the Blade, and you had Lance Archer with Jake Roberts doing promos. So you got Eddie Kingston and Jake Roberts doing promos on each other, which is amazing, and, and Taz getting into it, and you've got Taz with Starks and Cage all in the mix, and then Darby Allen, kind of the party crasher, in the mix, and it's like... I really enjoyed that dynamic, and I really look back at DiBiase versus Jake as one of my favorite examples, along with maybe the Midnight Express against Arn and Tully. In it's, it's, uh, it's tough to do heel versus heel. Freebirds Devastation Incorporated was really great. 
Um, I, uh, it's funny. I just, the podcast that I released today, uh, when we're recording this, so it'll be out and, you know, I put these out every Thursday and we're recording on a Thursday. It'll be out next Thursday. I put this one out was actually, um, it was an NWA anarchy war games between the devil's rejects and the NWA elite devil's rejects with, uh, Reverend Dan Wilson, the NWA elite with Jeff G. Bailey, who are these two tremendous, uh, Southern heel managers where you had like a heel versus heel war games where the idea was the only people evil enough to take out the devil's rejects were the NWA elites. So with these bastards against these even bigger bastards, it's hard to do I, You know, and that, that's actually my favorite sort of, you know, if, look, I'm a, you know, me, it's Saguna Kaina. I got to bring in the, I got to bring in the deep cuts if I'm yeah, talking man. about it. So that was one of my favorites where you had these guys. So, you know, plug, if you're listening to this podcast, go back and listen to that podcast. I actually have had uh, Dan, Reverend Dan Wilson and Jeff G. Bailey on the podcast with me talking about building a heel versus heel uh, feud and how, you, how they did that and how they sort of were able to do that without turning anybody babyface. That's He's awesome. Still, I really, uh, still evil shit. Uh, no, I, I love talking about heel heel dynamics, and it's funny but talking about the dichotomy of this match because, like, now tag—that's what people thought they were getting as this match was first introduced, and by the time it actually got delivered to them, they got a very different product. And it, both these guys are considered to be in the Mid South territory masters of the figure four. And I think in the in the wrestling nationally and internationally, Ric Flair is the master of the figure four. And, yeah, there and, was a you, million masters of the figure four in the 1980s. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. It always, and, you know, looking back at it with like a later, I was like, you know, somebody can't put on a knee bar or something and don't learn a Boston Crab. Everybody's got to be the master of the figure four. But yeah, it was a period where it just, that was that was your heel finishing move. Yeah, and if it's not Flair or Valentine. Um, you know, they're probably overbilling themselves. Right. The master, yes. I think. And but, even Valentine, who I love, you know, was one of my all time favorites. You know, exactly. that I'm a huge player. I'm a huge Valentine guy too. And I don't know about you. I'm a huge, and I say this to Rick all the time. One of my favorite tag teams of all time is Flair and Valentine. Yeah, it's great. They're great. They're it's so great. Not a ton of it, which is sort it's of not, a shame. You know, when I was a kid, again, that was footage that I was really, uh, excited to get and and it was really rare and now a lot of that stuff is out there and i don't even know if it's own i assume somebody probably does own it but it's like floating around there's all that 16 millimeter footage and there's a lot of good 16 millimeter footage out there and i think you've, you've reviewed some of it oh yeah and flair and valentine and i know they have a match with uh snooka and orndorff out there and some stuff with Snuka. and there's really just a lot of really good flair and valentine stuff uh what a great team and had a couple great runs. Uh, but I'm a huge Valentine fan, too, especially when he was, you know, that age. And and, uh, and the, even the early 80s and the heel turn on Rick, I think, is such good television. And, uh, the you know, to me, uh, though, if it's not those two guys and you're building yourself as the master of the figure four, it might be a bit of a stretch. But in this case, DiBiase in Mid-South was definitely known as a guy who used the figure four. So for the purposes of this TV match... These guys are both masters of the figure four. Right. And uh, Ted, like, is really trying to get the figure four on Rick in this match and gets it. And then, you know, obviously it gets broken up. And then later uh, he goes back to the well. And he goes to the well once too often. And that ends up being what costs him in this match, trying to put the figure four on Ric Flair, the master of the figure four, because 
he goes back to it and Rick does the counter where he kicks him off and then Ted takes the big bump over the ropes and that's it. That's the, that's the finish. Uh, Great and it's finish. pretty simple. But I think it's notable that that's kind of how psychologically I think it's kind of cool that, you know, trying to put the figure four on Ric Flair is actually what led to the final nail in the coffin because obviously there was, you know, death by a thousand cuts and the big one was the big, the big yeah, cut. Yeah, it was like, death by <laughs> one giant cut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like I said, but the but how he, how he got there, I mean, you could argue Ted never would have gotten thrown into the ring post if Rick hadn't need him in the back. So yeah. again, Rick stirring the drink and it, it puts heat on this match, but also, you know, furthers DiBiase and Murdoch. And of course, we'd be remiss. I think it's, you know, I, to me, before we get to the post-match stuff, you know, the finish is a count out right. and he takes that bump to the floor and, uh, you know, this whole match, the crowd, the crowd's chanting Teddy, Teddy, Teddy. And it's kind of miraculous because certainly none of those people showed up to the building thinking they were going to be chanting that. Right, <laughs> and, right. And you never heard people chanting that before this 15 second uh, series. Or of at least since he turned on the junkyard dog, right? Like, it's one of those names. It's like very chantable. Yeah. Teddy, Teddy. There's like certain things that wrestling fans, I believe, like, like, there's things that, like, if you can get them in a position, where they they'll want to chant it they will chant stuff and there's names larry jerry eddie teddy some names i don't know why but like if you give them to us that's it's got that syncophant uh fantic beat to it kind of people love and it's like and one of our favorites both of us eddie kingston uh wrestling fans love chanting eddie eddie Eddie. yeah and they always have no matter who it whether it's eddie kingston eddie guerrero uh and other you know in this case, Teddy, Teddy, it was, you know, if you give them a reason, they'll chant it. And they gave them a great reason. And uh, those people in that studio are chanting Teddy, Teddy. And, again, they did not show up for TV that day thinking that was what they were going to be doing. But they were doing it, which is masterful wrestling. And they do a count-out finish. And count-out finishes, they aren't always popular. I, you, you know, for me as a promoter, you could count on your one hand the number of count out and disqualification finishes I've done. Uh, I really like doing conclusive finishes, but I definitely think a count out is a much more conclusive finish than a disqualification. But they both sometimes there's a storyline reason for both. But you know, ultimately, it, it often feels unsatisfying. But I, you know, in this case, I thought this was a very well done count out. It was played almost like a knockout ten count. Yeah, for sure. And I think it, it's, I'm gonna, I think in some ways that's a little. I think that, that as an internet wrestling talking point, I think that's somewhat a little overplayed. Like I think in some promotions they they've overdone the cheap finish so much you, that I it doesn't work. Phil, when I was very young, <laughs> half and dude, it still is. I I I I will not let people off the hook on this. I like half the matches on the show are like a disqualification finish or something, and, and like it's been that way my whole life. Whether multiple promotions on television, really the the competitive promotions on television, such a large percentage of the matches ended in a disqualification. Yeah. I found it very unsatisfying when and I would you know instead you watch ECW or All Japan or various, and there's a lot more finishes, and maybe the happy medium is like. You know, Smoky Mountain was a very well-booked promotion. I think the UWF Mid-South, you see them sometimes, but not as often where it's like a crutch yeah. finish like it was 
in WCW at times and even today in other wrestling companies. So <laughs> I it shall I, remain nameless. Does that make sense? Like it, I have no problem with doing it sometimes. And I I probably underdo them where you never. But when we do do them, they really make sense. Right. And my my and, thought is, I'm just thinking about like you see see people say, well, you know, if that. Stan Hansen Andre the Giant match had a finish. It would be. It's like no. You the finish is these two crazy lunatics beat up the entire locker room because that's how it's going to end, right? Yeah, it's it's right. Godzilla King Kong. It's supposed to end with people to, with two giant monsters throwing chairs at each other in the crowd and they brawl to the end. That's like you know at some point that's that's what I mean. I think I think it, it becomes such a, a there's a clean finish fetish too where it's like you need to have somebody get pinned and. Sometimes you, sometimes you can do something where yeah, it, it's satisfying if there isn't a finish. A but I agree with you that... Everything, but if you make it where it's like a 50-50 thing, that's not right. And, like, you know, you should go into it expecting that at least 75-80% of the time, if not 90 or more, like, like I would say we tend to do, you're going to see a finish. And I get, uh, you know, people, you can argue that people want more clean finishes and stuff too. And I think there's a, there's a time and a place and it's to be said for that. But I've also in all the Memphis and mid South and various eighties and, and all kinds of wrestling that we've watched heels cheat to win matches. And if they have people outside the ring, they use them and that's nothing new. So uh, if that's getting heat, it's supposed to. Yeah, and I think, and, and just generally, I, in some ways, I think you know the the best wrestling is is you know is is going to be a mix of different things, right? So if it's like a manager interferes in the second match of a card. You can't have a different manager interfere in the fifth match of the card. Well, let me know? ask you this: Didn't we have that when we were kids? I don't know about that. I feel like Bobby Heenan, Jimmy Hart, and S- Sensational Sherry when I was a kid. Virgil, they would all screw around in matches. Yeah, like, and, but it was. I, I think it's bad. And, and I loved it. And I, I don't know. It. See, my argument is that was what they're doing out there. <laughs> if they're not going to screw around and try and get involved, in, what are they? Are they just like? And I agree. And not every time, every person, but pretty often, if you have a manager out there, like I said, when I was a kid, you know, Jim, if Jim Cornette and JJ Dillon and Paul Jones and you know are all on the same show, there's a good chance at least two of them are going to get involved in the match. And with Jimmy Hart, Bobby Heenan, Sherry, Virgil, and a couple other managers when I was a kid, you know, they were going to get in, they were going to do stuff if they were out there usually. And I. Well, you know, that, that I think was the you know my issue with '80s WWF wrestling is it was so you know you could. I mean, close your eyes and, and count to the point where the man, the heel is going to get run into the manager who jumps in the end and then get rolled up for the two. I mean, so much of that stuff was so... But there so... was so little good wrestling. <laughs> yeah, you that's know, the reason. bell-to-bell wrestling. It's like, that's why Savage Steamboat sticks out so much or some of the British Bulldogs and Heart Foundation matches that they had with each other and other people or as singles matches or some of the some of the Randy Savage matches. There's, there's some matches that stand out so much because that was not the norm on those shows. And, you know, uh, it's like, I don't know, it's a, it's a good philosophical conversation for sure. Uh, but I, I see everybody's points for the most part. If they're, if they're logical and well-constructed, I like to, like, look at what fans say and if there's any credence or merit or logic whatsoever to it, I'll usually, like, try to con- take con- into consideration. And I, what you're saying is very logical and makes a lot of sense, and I think that... There's always, I don't know. I, it's it, it, it's a good point, and and so for me, like as we talk about finishes and stuff, I think it's a it's a really good 
point you're making, but I think the norm for so long when people were unchecked is to do these. And, like, especially if, you know, in a situation where it feels like you're going to get some sort of a conclusion, it feels, like, very bait-and-switchy sometimes when people do finishes designed to get you to pay for another match when you already paid for this one or committed your time or whatever, you know, to, to watch that show. Sure, so, and I think that's a difference. I mean, it, it certainly... I think the difference between you're running a television product and you're not necessarily look. Your goal isn't to get people to show up at uh, you know this the Sportatorium uh, or yeah. the Mid South Coliseum or the Mass Square Garden or something like that. I, I think you probably have to look at things a little differently when you're what you're trying to do is get people to watch TV every week is a little different than TV is the thing to get them to buy a ticket. I mean, yeah. I, you're go- hopefully soon. I would assume you're going to start running live shows again you know now that the world has started to somewhat uh return to normalcy not obviously not completely and people still have to be very careful but you know uh, but you're you the business of aew is not necessarily to sell live tickets right well it will be you know we were the number one uh ticket selling wrestling company in the world before the pandemic and uh we didn't run the highest volume of shows but we had the highest uh, attendance per show of any wrestling company in the world in 2019 and we had a really strong start to 2020 we were trending up and the shows were sold out and we were you know po- poised to have a really good attendance year again for you know our second year in 2020 back in 2021 we are going on the road next month in july and have dates booked in miami dallas austin and charlotte and not just dates but i planned big cards and we do these big events in the summer traditionally and i'm gonna make sure we do our full summer live event calendar and we're back to normal back to doing these shows and hitting great wrestling markets so we're starting like i said with miami austin dallas and charlotte and you know i i'm excited to get out and do shows in different places it's going to be cool to hear fan feedback and it was really good to have that through this whole pandemic honestly because I was kind of running a territory through the pandemic. Like, a, you know, it's we weren't wrestling in a studio. We're wrestling in a great amphitheater, but I could only use it at 25% capacity self-imposed. Uh, you know, through the pandemic, there was uh, felt like the right amount, and we that's what we did with the Jaguars and with AEW in the summer going forward. And we did live shows down here in Florida every week uh, for a while, and 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 did some taping so it was every other week and and uh but you know consistently a few times a month we're providing live tv wrestling national tv uh here in a place that hadn't been serviced in jacksonville like on a weekly basis in a really long time and it's you know to have a few shows a month uh in one city like we built up a good group of regulars and you know the the attendance was what we it was what it, we could do and it but it was the only live tv wrestling product the last year I, where you had that authentic experience like i never i like virtual fans as a concept but the execution of it for me has Pass. never yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I do not like concept, it as a concept the, con- concept, the idea whatever it, it sounds but i passed on it i mean yeah. i did pass on the idea. it was an idea that uh was something that was presented to me uh as something we could do with with our tv and it was something i didn't want to do and i said i'm going to open it up safely and we've been doing shows since august with zero known transmissions and thousands of people have come to the shows and for big shows we've had you know over a thousand people and that's 
not the biggest crowd ever, but it's a wrestling crowd. Right. And I remember something you said at the beginning of the pandemic when we had the wrestlers at ringside when, you know, maybe I've got 25 people at ringside, you know, a dozen faces and a dozen heels or so. And you had said, like, look, this is at least a recognizable form of professional wrestling. Like, it's <laughs> right. like an indie show, but it's like a well-produced, slick indie show. And it's like, that's this is at least some recognizable form of wrestling, whereas this empty arena virtual stuff, I can't even... And I agreed with you. And that's why I did it that way, because I was watching uh, the talk shows, and I watched Fallon. Uh, you may have heard me say this before, so I'm sorry if you have, but uh, just to reiterate it, uh, the week that everything shut down, I started to watch other TV and try and get a feel for what you could do and watch other, like, you know, watch stuff, the Tupelo concession stand brawl, uh, parking lot fights, stuff like that, and uh, which is where I got the idea for what became the Best Friends and Santana Ortiz parking lot fight, by the way. Something you could do that would be, you know, an empty arena setting I could do outside with people outside. And, uh, you know, I started to procure the cars, like, as soon as the pandemic happened, actually. And, um... Then uh, I watched Fallon and I watched Colbert and Colbert did his show with an empty audience and then like no nobody in the studio and not even one person like laughing at a joke. And it was just hard. And it was just a different presentation of comedy on TV than I was used to. And then I watched Fallon and he had maybe a dozen writers and staff and people in the studio and they were laughing at the jokes like, you know, it was a small stand up set. But it like you like. To paraphrase you, it, it was a recognizable form of comedy, right. and it was like a small comedy show being done out of necessity as a small show to pr- protect people. So that's you know what we started doing, and then uh, when it got to the point where uh, you know we were doing testing, and and then we learned more about it and realized that like you know if people spread out outside and you create distance outside where people aren't on top of each other, it's pretty safe if everyone isn't you know spitting wears masks and aren't spitting on each other you can go to the drive-in movies you can do things outside so i tried to create like the drive-in movie experience at daily's place where people could go take their family and have their own area and kind of camp out outside and get like you know sodas beers t-shirts whatever and we changed the way we did merchandise where like uh and concessions where you know the minimize the line time and you could just go your stuff would be ready for you to pick up you could order online and just tried to change things. But I believe in, like, live wrestling. So it meant, I thought it was cool when you said, like, you know, over a year ago when we started doing this, that at least it's a recognizable form of wrestling we're presenting. And yeah. I tried to do that and keep presenting it that way. And that's, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm a guy who watched a, I'm a, I'm an IWA Mid-South fan. So it's not like I have any problem with wrestling in front of 35 people. <laughs> but at least there's some people, right? You know, like, at least there's a reaction to Chris Hero, Ian Rotten, as opposed to zero reaction or some sort of video screen. I mean, I honestly couldn't watch. I honestly, I watched probably, I, I can't watch that stuff. I mean, I just, just, I can't. You know, when you get, when you get a little, you know, I'm still in the mines writing every day in Sagunakai, you didn't watch a ton of wrestling, but you just, you don't have, you know, when you have, get older and you get, you know, have family and things like that and regular job, it's like you can't do that same sort of, you have to be a little more selective in what you watch. And it's like the first couple times I try, it's like, I can't. This isn't doing it anything for me, so I'm just not gonna watch it. You know, every once in a while, Eric will pester me to watch a TV match. We'll put it up on the blog, but as far as a re- any regular viewing, if it didn't have, if it doesn't have fans, it's just I, I don't. It's not wrestling, and because in some ways, I think you know what makes it, what makes it something that's, you know, that I that I, I probably and you too, you know, longtime fans like us. 
the interaction between the performers and the crowd is what makes it a thing, right? Is what what makes rest. If wrestling was a a cable drama, you know, it's just you know which places people have tried to do before. It just it doesn't. It takes so much of the essence of what it is that it's, it felt it's, like. I mean, the, the Colbert and Fallon. I've said it a hundred times on different podcast interviews and stuff, but it's true. I like I, they're both great in their own way, but. And you, you know what? Say what you will about the two performers and the two shows, but in the empty audience setting, I didn't find I, Colbert changed the format of his show, went home, and then he was doing jokes from home, and it was a different feel. And it, to me, it worked a lot better than when he was trying to do it in the empty studio, and it was just like, un, like to paraphrase you, an unrecognizable form of comedy where like so much of it is about. The reaction. So, like you said, it's about the the interaction between the stand-up comedian and the perform and the the audience. And uh, so, w- watching a guy try and do stand-up in an empty room is kind of weird. Yeah, uh, totally. I also watched the Letterman shows during the there was a hur- uh, there was um, a hurricane, I think, or a tropical storm. There was like where the studio got shut down. And there was no audience, and it was just Dave. And like, they, instead of the graphics for the top ten, they would like hold up the cue cards in front of his desk, yeah. like, and be like top ten. And I just, uh, I was trying to get a feel for like what people did in tough situations. So the show we came out with, I was like pretty proud of the first show we did in the pandemic because um, we were the you know first TV show to have an audience, which was not wrestlers in the crowd because you certainly weren't going to sell tickets. And uh, anyway, like. It's been a weird era of wrestling, but um, we are getting back to having fans and going to some of these places and um, even going to some of the Mid-South towns. And I know we're going to be going back to Houston, uh, which I'm really excited about because it was one of the places we were supposed to go early in the pandemic. And it's one of my favorite wrestling towns. And uh, this, you know, watching this stuff is watching all this Mid-South has uh, made me kind of yearn to watch more of it. And the the thing about this match what's amazing to me there's like so much stuff that happens in such a short time the flair dibiase match we've been talking about that after the bell i mean there's still after the count out all this has happened in you know 12 13 minutes really <laughs> like really all total time and uh that when dick murdoch picks the bones and the brain buster on the floor oh is one of the most memorable things about this whole thing is after DiBiase loses, talk about kicking a guy when he's literally down, Dick Murdoch goes and gives him on the concrete floor in the studio one of the nastiest brain busters you're ever going to see. I mean, he had, you know, he's a top five brain buster. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, there's some other candidates. Killer Carl Cox, obviously, is, you know, I think the the obvious contender for it. Yep. Uh, we talked actually a fair amount about uh, me and Eric did a podcast about Cox Murdoch. We talked a lot about Brainbuster, the Brainbuster rankings on that one, where we started going back and forth about Brainbusters and you know how Coke we you know Coco Ware had one and how he would just how you the know Ghostbuster Ghostbuster the Coco Ware always was like his always looked like he was just fucking sheer dropping whatever poor schmuck he wrestled him right on his head with no resolve or care for that person's well-being. You know what's amazing? It's weird is about the WWF enhancement shows when I was a kid. There'd be like all these matches that were kind of nothing, but then the finishers would be this like brutal thing <laughs> like that. And it was like there were some of the most brutal head-dropping finishers you'll ever see 
But then the rest of the match is like there's not that much to it. Yeah, I think, <laughs> and I don't know I why. Coco Coco is one of those guys where we talked about this in other pod. Famous for like fucking job guys up. Like he's one of those guys. Like you know, if you w- walked in and collected your seventy five dollars and saw you had to wrestle Coco, where it's like shit. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> Twice we've segued into Coco completely naturally yes. out of nowhere because I think the the Bill Dundee Jerry Lawler story from uh, Memphis in eighty five also, which is it's crazy. This is around the same time. <laughs> yeah, right, right around the same within weeks, I think, right? Yeah, it's crazy, and uh, I mean that that Lawler Dundee '85 stuff. You could talk about it for hours, including the Lawler drunk angle, oh God, and it's another best, great example of Rick stuff. being the motivator. Rick's not even there in the territory, and really, just the name Rick Flair floating around yeah. creates so much tension. And this, but the brainbuster on the floor, and they leave DiBiase Lang. The way Doctor Death runs in to close this thing. And he doesn't, he like, while simultaneously, like, looking at Dick Murdoch, like, you piece of shit, but just going straight to DiBiase because, like, he's more concerned about DiBiase's well being than he is about getting his hands on Dick Murdoch right now. Right. And then, you know, Williams turns face, too. And it's like, he just kind of, as a corollary thing, like, that's his boy. And now we're baby faces now. Okay. Well, they've been like, such a great heel tag team. And I think, you know, another thing I liked about DiBiase in this run, you know, which, again, see, you've dug through all the matches and really like have probably a little bit different perspective from doing the developmental work to build the Mid-South set and watching hundreds of Mid-South matches in the process. Cause I've watched a lot of it, but I think I'm probably seeing more of the highlights because there's a lot of great matches. And I also really like DiBiase's tag teams with Dr. Death and with Hercules. Yeah. Hercules and, uh, is, is kind of weirdly, he was another one of those guys who, you know, like Duggan. Whereas if you watch non WWF Hercules, you know, and I don't think a ton of people have a ton of amazing things to say about WWF Hercules as a wrestler. But there's some Hercules in other places. Oh, like, oh, this Hercules guy's pretty Hernandez, good. Man. Hercules Hernandez in Mid-South, absolutely great. <laughs> yeah. uh, big, and and you're right. It's To a lesser extent, it is kind of like the Duggan thing where you, you go back and you watch. You're totally right. Because when I saw these things when I was 11, 12, even then I couldn't believe how much better I dug in especially, but you're right, also Hercules. It's like, man, he was really good. And then it's a totally different, younger Jake. And to see the Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express developing and coming into their own and Jim Cornette really turning into the best wrestling manager in the world before your eyes. And uh, to have, uh, you know, so and, and Buddy Landell and Butch Reed is one of my favorite acts ever. Oh, yeah, so good. I love that. I did. And, and love Buddy both, Landell. I love Buddy Landell. He's one of my favorite, and it's well known within AEW that he's one of my favorite wrestlers. I have like a Buddy Landell T-shirt that I got as a Christmas, as a uh, birthday gift, and uh, a, a big portrait of Buddy Landell at home that was a gift. Uh, you have and a portrait of Buddy Landell, like a somebody gave me as a as a birthday present. <laughs> that's a that's portrait of Buddy Landell. By that's a insane. It's a, it's a birthday present. I love it. That's great. Yeah, it's great. I love Budro. And there's, you know, I could talk about Budro all day and the the Bill and Buddy show. By the way, when they did the Bill and Buddy show, it's so Memphis and Bill and Buddy that, like, Buddy is sitting in front of the Bill and Bill is sitting in front of the Buddy when they sit at the desk in Memphis. But, um, oh, man, if if only, you know, I I can imagine, you know, if if worlds are different, like a Buddy Landell uh, heel manager run. You kind of did the thing where you brought some of the great like heels of your childhood and gave them all jobs. There for was, Buddy, well, if Buddy Landell was 
alive and well, there's a very, very, very good chance Buddy Landell would be managing somebody in AEW right now. Sure. That is true. I'm sure he'd uh, be amazing at it, too. Yeah, it'd be great. I mean, and he's, I think he's from Jacksonville. Oh. I think, uh, uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I think he, I'm looking. I looked up. He lived in Knoxville and Jacksonville. Yeah. I think, I believe, Dean Malenko, because Dean Malenko's dad trained him. And, uh, oh, I didn't so, know that. He was he was Boris Malenko trained. That's cool. Yeah. And so I think he is from Jacksonville, and then he lived in Knoxville forever. Um, but so anyway, Buddy Landell is one of my favorites, and the act, the Buddy Landell and Butch Reed act uh, before you know when they were together, what a pair! I mean, Butch Reed, one of the most credible, big, awesome heels I've ever seen. And Butch Reed, by the way, is another guy. This all the same thing we just said about Duggan and Hercules. I'd put him up there with Duggan in terms of when I first saw him. I, I'd seen Butch Reed in Doom, and I had seen the natural Butch Reed when I was, like, 11, 12, I guess 12 at this point. Yeah. And when I got, you know, I felt like I knew a lot of Butch Reed from the WCW and the uh, the, the the natural Butch Reed in the WWF I'd seen. But, oh, my goodness, the yeah. Mid-South Butch Reed is one of the greatest. There's a uh, – one of the, we do, like, RIP posts frequently, and people pass away on Scudicaita. So I did – when we did Butch Reed, I did, like, well, let me find – I watched like five five natural matches. Let me. Is there a good natural match? There's a lot of this house show stuff we didn't have available anymore, and it was like you kind of go. I was like, oh, there's not really a good natural match. Not, <laughs> I, I, I didn't find one. I kind of looked. There were some like intriguing tags. He was also working a lot of sort of end of the road Morocco too. Is another guy who very much uh, cashed a paycheck. Uh, when he got to the WWF, so yeah, and there was like one tag that had like some fun moments, but it wasn't wasn't. I wouldn't. Was there say, not a good Butch Reed Tito Santana match? I think there was one that was okay. Tito was like one of those guys who was you know you always good for a primetime wrestling TV match. Yeah, I like about- yeah, I like Tito Santana yeah. a lot. I would if Tito. I mean, if Tito Santana was, I would I would use Tito Santana a lot if he if he came along now and was that you know the same young wrestler, um, and uh, you know for me. Uh, I always love Butch Reed, though, and I think the you know he, he, that combination of the two and Buddy Landell being just such a snivelly heel. But one of my favorite things is how he would like take credit for the things Butch Reed was doing <laughs> so well, <laughs> like when Butch Reed's lifting weights and he tell him I taught him how to do that, and and uh, they just had a really good chemistry, and uh, that you can't put a price tag on chemistry, and they, those two. It's it's a very underrated pair, Butch Reed and Buddy Landell to me, and they weren't together probably as long as they should have been. And when they did the angle where Skandar Akbar broke him up to turn Butch Reed babyface, I mean it made sense, and Butch Reed was a good babyface for them. But I just thought as a as a big and kind of like what you were describing, you know, in terms of being the the guy who wore the suits and the sunglasses and the the nice neckties, and it was a, as a champion uh, and a big you know talking heel. He gave a very different presentation, to say the least, than say Ric Flair. Sure, like he he wore those white shirts, Butch Reed, that he was just gonna rip right out of. And he's one of my favorites. And to be honest, when Will Hobbs, when I was turning Will Hobbs heel, I told him to watch a lot of this. And you've seen Will Hobbs come out in the shirts, and I remember once I was like, "You got to get it tighter in the sleeves, Will." And then, <laughs> got to cut off the circulation to make it really yeah, yeah. get that really and uh, with the with the vest and everything just like Butch Reed and um, it meant a lot. Butch Reed's family reached out to Will and it meant a lot to both of us and and I thought it was really cool for for Will and just great to hear Butch Reed's family reached out to Will 
and said he was Butch Reed's favorite wrestler, oh, that's which awesome. made my year. So uh, I thought that was great, and I wish I'd known that when Butch Reed was around because I would have loved if he'd come to the shows. And uh, so, yeah, it's just, uh, there's so much great stuff in the Mid-South, and I think this is like a microcosm, but it's also an easy entry point because, like, it's, it's short, give it a chance. And I feel you like get so you get so much of the characters. You get a taste of Murdoch. You get that. I mean, Bill Watts, who was you know the, yep. obviously you get you get a good a good piece of what Bill Watts did so well and how Young Jr. and Joel Watts. Yeah, Young Jr. Joel Watts. You know, yeah. one of the things that it's funny because having done a lot of tape shows, maybe it wasn't as easy to punch stuff on commentary back then. But since the show was obviously taped, uh, I would have cleaned up when Joel and Joel Watts, I think, would have been the one that did this editing, or maybe I'm wrong, but I think he was involved in in the tapes and the editing of the shows. At least I believe. It's I know definitely, he, so, definitely, it's something to do with it. I mean, there was a, the famous story of of Joel Watts. Apparently, there was a Flair Murdoch match. They said it was the best match he's ever seen, and then he he taped it and left the tape in a hot car. I think it was one of, one of the great like footage nerd gosh. tragedies of all time. Oh. Well, that's what I mean, but he did. He made some great music videos, and, you know, he was a, a, an okay commentator, but I think behind the scenes, it's, it, the perception I've always had is he did some good stuff making the videos and editing the shows. But he, at one point, he slips and says, like, you know, we could have a new North American champion, and, and then he catches himself, and he's like, I mean, world champion. But that's one of those little things I was like, if I, I would have tried to fix that <laughs> if you, on a tape show if I could have. But um, that's, like, one of the only things. That, I mean, it's pretty much a perfect piece of business and you get to see like you said it's a perfect touch of it you get that young jim ross commentary you get to see bill watts as the company president in probably the role he's best suited as an on-screen character at this point and the is a flavor of the show the studio what what the the company was like in 84 85 which was such a great two-year run for me and uh then you know like you said i mean you see Murdoch, DiBiase, you get to see the heel DiBiase and the babyface DiBiase all in one short span, and and there's Ric Flair in there too, so it's it's hard to beat this. And so everybody, go watch this on their DVD. Uh, I can go. <laughs> yeah, I, <you'll, laughs> rare time you'll hear me encouraged to watch a competitor's DVD because I don't want to encourage anybody. To, uh, right, you know, you're, you're, but, but that being said, you know, I, I whatever. <laughs> I got you. I understand the the struck strictures you were under. The, that's what happened. You know, old an old tape trader back in the day, but now it's like uh, all uh, you're on the other side of the, the fence. Yes, <laughs> you're like a you're like a thief that gets hired from the by the FBI. You know? Yes, <laughs> that's so that's so great. Yeah. Well, I, but you know, that being said, I we have. Uh, you know, I've, I, that's why I don't do 76 pay-per-views a year because I know it's a big deal to get people to pay for them. And we've had a better pay-per-view audience than anybody that's come along to compete with WWF, WWE in 20 years. since. I mean, since it was literally the WWF. Yeah. Nobody has come along in that entire run and had, you know, any shows that have done over 100,000 on pay-per-view. And we've had many, and almost all of them have done over. And the, so I'll leave it at that. But almost every show we've done has done over 100,000 buys. And the, and anything we haven't has done very close. And every pay-per-view we've done has been, every I think nine pay-per-views now, every single one of them has been bigger than anybody had done 
in that span. It took him besides obviously the mm-hmm. WWF, and, and, and you kind of survived this this period that I, you know is I think was perilous for everybody who was trying to do any kind of business of any kind, right? I mean, you know, whether you were running a restaurant or a a, a barber salon or a wrestling promotion, I, you know, dude, it was getting... fun. Honestly, like it was scary <laughs> at times, and like, but it was good to have. It was good to have it in these crazy times to have uh, to have something that that you know we could keep going and it, sometimes when people were gone or uh you know people became unavailable whether people you know couldn't travel didn't want didn't feel comfortable traveling or later uh if somebody actually for you know went home and got exposed and got sick whatever happened like uh throughout this whole thing trying to keep it going uh I, we've done some cool stuff in that time you know i i, I read what you guys wrote about the santana or cheese match and i thought it was really cool because like it it was an idea that to me was born out of the necessity of the pandemic and it was something that you guys really liked and the fans generally have really liked and look at eddie kingston and i've always really liked eddie but the idea of him didn't come up until we were doing the tnt title open challenge which was again kind of a product of the pandemic and the tnt title was literally a product of the pandemic because you know i booked that tournament when we were almost up against really up against the wall with a very small roster and uh it's a story that i have told many times now but just to reiterate i mean the entire month of april i booked in about 20 minutes effectively and then like spent the uh, the rest of the night kind of polishing moving stuff around and then was editing tapes that we shot for about a month of you know piecing footage together and i got an appreciation for the stuff you always hear jim Cornette talking about taping a month of TV in a small studio and then dropping in stuff, wraparounds, and then coming up with ideas to update it or somebody drops out and you have to edit it, the footage, or change, right. you know, the order of the shows and recut stuff. I mean, um, it it became like a, a studio territory wrestling show more so than ever when we were literally doing it in a small studio. And putting those shows together and doing that stuff, when you say survived, like, I don't know. I, I, I think we came out of it as a better company in my opinion with a better roster and so i just wanted to whenever we got back to normal my big goal was to be in as good a place as we were when we left and what's crazy is i think we're actually better off and you know uh we've got stability with our tv partner our pay-per-views went up through the pandemic thanks to the great audience we built and you know most of the shows i think have been really good and if there was ever something that wasn't really good i'd like to think we came back the next show and hit it out of the park so uh and i think that's something that's really important like that i think wrestling fans if you if one show isn't good that's never run off a wrestling fan in my opinion one show that wasn't good it takes like a bad run of shows a bad string of stories and you know a lot of stuff to to turn a loyal viewer into somebody that doesn't want to watch a show and you don't want to like abuse it but to me it's good because it's like a it's like a friendship or a relationship like one dumb thing usually isn't going to kill it. But whether you have a really great, loyal wrestling fan who likes your product. But if you consistently abuse, insult them, you're going to run them off, just like a friend or a family member, a, a spouse, a girlfriend, whatever. And uh, uh, to me, uh, 
that's that's how I see it. So I always try, even if we screw up, to like try to make good or do right by the fans because I am one of them, and I know what it feels like to be insulted by a wrestling show and not want to watch it anymore. <laughs> right, you were you watched you were a WCW fan when the NWO ran in week after week after week after week after week. <laughs> I mean, I was you know I've watched most wrestling shows and like that is a good example of like turning the fans off and like beating you know uh, beating people away from wanting to watch a show. I was a big WCW fan. And honestly, one of the things, even being like before, before I had, you know, read the RSPW FAQ and like gone behind this, the, the, that curtain and learned about how, so to, so to speak, some things in wrestling actually worked that I didn't understand and had that light bulb moment. Um, I still had some ideas from reading the magazines of, of how friendships and stuff worked and PWI would allude to things without saying them. And when Hulk Hogan went to WCW, I was like really into WCW when he showed up. And he changed it really quick into something I really did not like. Until <laughs> that that period was that Hogan, uh, the renegade, Duggan, yeah. hockey talk man period at WCW was rough. It's uh, rough, and it's, <laughs> it's so good when he showed up. It's like talk about a, like the, the the quick swing, the hundred and eighty degree. I mean, that's in a bad that's an example of it in a bad way to me. But yeah. but you can't argue that it was in in the end it ended up being a path to a bigger larger company that did better things and became bigger and it made sense but it was in it like kind of like what we were talking about in ted dibiase like it's not you know watching those cartoonish million dollar man promos some of it's good to me but i but at the same time it's not rick flair and it's not the same thing that is an adult you want but i can't deny that it was very effective yeah. for what it was supposed to be doing and that's how i feel about that when hulk went to wcw clearly it did make him a better company a bigger company but it, it's still a bitter pill to swallow when you know, they're doing great shows like Spring Stampede 94, and then you see what they're doing by Starcade 94. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, you know, it's one of the advantages that I, you know, you, when you're just a fan, it's like, I, you know, I, I have the uh, luxury of not really giving a shit whether something is, is financially uh, feasible or not. Like, I only care whether I like it. So, I, and, and, you know, when you get to be old, it's like you realize, yeah, that's not everybody's doesn't agree with me. <laughs> Sure. Like, it, of course you bring in Hulk Hogan, but that doesn't mean I want to watch it, yep. <laughs> right? Like, I, I want to see, I want to watch six more months of Stud Stable versus Dustin Rhodes is what I want to watch, but that's yeah, not... <laughs> and, I mean, you know, Flair and Steamboat were doing a program on top that was, I mean, it's 1994. It's only five years after uh, the 89 matches. I was still really enjoying that. Yeah, and those Steve matches are great. Mix, and it was just like a good good wrestling company there was a lot of good stuff going on and then hulk hogan shows up with all these guys <laughs> that i'd already gotten really sick of seeing and then to me the wwf tv had gotten so much more compelling as a kid after all these guys left yeah <laughs> and and so it was like the worst situation possible and then uh so then, you know i still have a lot of time for the uh king of the road match i write that up in my book i i defend that as a uh as the, during the worst of the hogan era wcw Pre Nitro, that's like my uh, that's I think is the is the lost hidden gem of that. Uh, of I agree. With it. It's funny because it was so good. Dustin got fired for it for doing something. <laughs> yeah. <bad. laughs> you, you was the last time you watched that match? Have you watched that? It's been it? a while, uh, but I, I mean, I, I watch it. I watch it for the book, and you're like watching. It's like these guys are nuts. They're doing like they're throwing like. They're wrestling, uh, you know, there were multiple moments where if anything goes wrong, uh, you know, like Barry Darso is going to plunge to his death and get run over by a car. <laughs> you know, you should have Keith come on and talk about it, or Dustin. I mean, they would, they, Keith and Dustin could talk for hours about how crazy that thing was. Keith Mitchell. 
um, who'd be a really interesting person for you to talk to because Keith has seen so he has such unique experience in the wrestling business, right? Because I don't know if you know, Keith was the producer director of World Class. Oh, I didn't know that. He did World Class before he came into WCW in '89. And then he did everything from 89 to the end of WCW and then was in impact all the way until AEW started. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then has been with me since the beginning of AEW. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Keith's experiences in the wrestling business encompass so much cool stuff. And he's got such incredible stories. And, and But it's funny. I mean, uh, there's – it's that, – that Dustin, I sit at his right hand – so often he sits at my right hand we sit next to each other like on a you know i guess technically i i would be sitting on the left he's sitting because i sit left most in the gorilla but uh i'm left-handed and um so i'm sitting there on the left edge as is people may have seen a couple times when people have done run-ins or stuff there and you briefly have seen it on television but i'm i'm generally sitting there on the left side and dustin often if he's doing the match is sitting there to my right i meet with him i talk to him on a daily basis he is when it comes to doing stuff to this day he has no fear and he's crazy and the king of the road match like now it comes as no surprise to me and then a year later the gold dust and roddy piper backlop brawl like dust that is crazy shit he is crazy and he's still and that was 25 years ago over 25 years ago the backlop brawl i mean the the i guess over 26 years ago for the king of the road match he would still do Every single thing there, and could still do every single thing he did there. He could and would do. Did you watch the bull rope match the other night? I haven't watched it yet. It's on my DVR. You'll uh, enjoy. But I'm excited. You'll about definitely it. enjoy. I, you know, I, I'll, I I try to watch all. He's all obviously. I mean, I think you you know obviously one of my all time favorites. That's the. Uh, I, mean, I don't know if I'm I'm dropping this. And, it, oh, that's fine. I'll break something news at a one thirty point of a podcast. That's the next book, uh, Dustin of the Day. Uh, really? Yeah. The Dustin of the Day is such a. I, I didn't know you were going to do it. Do, do you have all the old Dustin of the Days? Or we've you gonna got rewrite? we've got some of them, not as many because it's like the internet. A lot of it's disappeared. So we've got I was in college when you did the Dustin of the Day, and I love the Dustin of the Day. Yeah. So I got you know lined up Tom, and uh, and then we're, I'm doing it, and that's that that's book two. We go we say you know we like I said I guess. We're, Maybe I should cut this under my hat, but whatever. We're an hour thirty, and who's still listening? Uh, we dropped. Uh, yeah, we signed the contracts this weekend, so that's the next book. So I, you should. I, uh, well, I'll you know introduce you to Dustin for that. I'm oh, sure he would love, love to talk to you about it. I talked to Dustin about like random. I'm not. I hate to say random because there's so many of them are so good. But I, I've put like given Dustin spots to do in matches in AEW that are spots from like. Dangerous Alliance and <laughs> tag matches from like '92. And one time he was like, "I did that," and I was like, "Yeah, why?" And we did it. And he was like, "We did the exact same six in a six-man tag. We did the same exact thing." Um, I think it's Dustin and the Young Bucks do something, and it's like a, a, the exact spot I got out of uh, a Dangerous Alliance six-man tag where it's like you know maybe it's Dustin Wyndham and Steamboat. Like what a great era of wrestling, right? Yeah, that's like the, the best. That's a, that's a, that, I love. I gotta love. I love that deep nerd wrestling shit where you're like pulling out. Tape from 30 years ago. It's like, all right, do this hot tag. Yeah. yeah. I was like, really I don't remember that, man. I was. The really specific spot. But anyway, I was like, I, I was like, do this. And he was like, have I done that? I was like, yeah. And I showed him. And he was like, um, and so he would love to talk about that because he likes going back and looking at that stuff. And sometimes it's useful because he can literally do every single thing he did back then, even the spin bump and all that. He does it all still. And so 
Uh, he's a marvel, and I think you'll really enjoy the bull rope match. It's a fun TV match, mm-hmm. uh, and um, you know, I, I, I'm glad you're doing that, Dustin of the Day book. I think that's really cool. Cool. All right. Well, buddy, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, I uh, do. You, I mean, obviously, you have probably have some things to plug. Uh, yeah, I think probably I people know what's uh, going on. When, when are you going to release this? A week from today. Okay, so Dynamite, we have Saturday Night Dynamite. Uh, Jungle Boy is a wrestler I'm very, very excited about. Jack Perry is a rising star. The crowd erupted. We had 5,000 people blowing the roof off Daly's Place, and I think it's one of the biggest wrestling pops since this whole thing started. And, and honestly, in any era of wrestling, it would have been one of the biggest pops you'll hear when Jungle Boy earned this title shot. And I think Jungle Boy versus Kenny Omega is going to be awesome. It's Saturday Night Dynamite, and it is the last Dynamite before we go back to our Wednesday time slot. And then we're doing Dynamite Wednesday, June 30th, live in Jacksonville, and it will be the last Dynamite in Jacksonville for a, for a while. Not that long, though. We're, we're doing a, a tour. We're going the whole month of July. We'll be doing uh, shows. And by now, you'll know that uh, the July 7th show in Miami is a very special Super Dynamite called Road Rager. And it'll be the first time we've been on the road in, like I said, over 14 months. And Road Rager in Miami should be really fun. And it's going to lead right into our big summer events. So we Fighter Fest. We're doing two weeks of Fighter Fest in Texas and have really good crowds already before I've even announced that these shows are Fighter Fest. We've already sold well, you know, well over 3,000 tickets in both cities already. And we'll, I think, have a pretty good chance to sell both towns out, Austin and Dallas. And then going to Charlotte. And that will be our Fight for the Fallen show, uh, which is one of our biggest shows, one of our biggest dynamites of the year, always. And so that'll be our July tour. And then I'm going to stop back in Jacksonville, August 4th, and I'm calling it Homecoming. And, um, I'm, you know, the Jacksonville audience to me has been America's wrestling audience in many ways because on national TV, it's the only place this past year you've been able to see live fans. And especially from August forward when we started – running at 25%, you know, uh, on a, on a great week, you know, it was over a thousand and on a bad week, maybe it was only 650, 700, but, uh, there was, that's a good TV wrestling crowd and sure. they were, they were socially distanced, spaced out. It, you know, it's uh, some of them, uh, in the top bowl, but there were, there were people there reacting and, and they really supported wrestling in America. So it's important for me to keep coming back and supporting them. So, uh, we'll do a homecoming show on August 4th. And then we're going to Pittsburgh on August 11th for two nights, and it will be Dynamite on Wednesday, and then the Rampage era begins there in Pittsburgh, and we'll do our first ever AEW Rampage. Um, The fact that these shows are called Dynamite and Rampage still blows my mind every day because, you know, the same, when I was like 12 years old, even before I'd gotten these tapes or watched this match, I was uh, doing an MS-DOS, you know, I would that I still have on my computer to this day, an MS-DOS simulator called Rampage Wrestling, and put data, you know, it's a database, you put in stats for the wrestlers, and then you simulate wrestling matches, and it's text-based, there's no graphics whatsoever, and uh, I've created wrestling federations and matches and cards and stories in it for over 20 years before I actually started doing them as a real thing, and the game is called Rampage, and my show's since 1995 have always been called dynamite 
Oh, that's hilarious. And so to have, like, a, you know, to do Dynamite and now to do Rampage, it's pretty cool. All right. Well, everybody, if you've enjoyed, I think there are probably some people who are listening to this podcast who are not aware of the book. Um, so if you enjoyed this conversation, we've got a, this podcast comes out every week and it's available on all podcast platforms. The book is available on Amazon. So please, if you're interested in this, check that out. I think it's uh, pretty fun. The art in there that uh, my uh, friend Chris Bryan did is incredible. And it's really just worth it almost as an art book, even if you have no interest in reading anything. Congratulations on the book, man. It's really cool uh, that you're doing. I think it's really cool to see the IWC rallying around it, too, because I think you've – I. I don't want to say unsung hero because I think your praises have been sung. You're a song hero, but I think you're not wide, your praises are not widely sung enough. So I think it's really cool to uh, see you having this time in the sun and this book getting a lot of praise that you deserve. Oh, man, I really appreciate that. That's really nice. Um, so, yeah, and then read sagunakaeda.blogspot.com, uh, which I've been writing. So we've been writing a new thing about uh, wrestling every day for – 15 14 15 years so you, certainly if you've never heard of it before you can waste a couple days going back through the archives and read all kinds of crazy shit that we've been writing about uh tony it's been nice to talk to you we've been circling each other online for for uh 20 years but i think this is the first conversation we've ever had and i had a great time doing it and i really appreciate you coming on yeah me too phil we'll, we'll stay in touch and uh i really i'm glad uh thank you for inviting me i'm glad we did this and i'm really excited for your book and i'm wishing you a ton of success with it 